You aren't the church individually. You'll learn next week that you are a part of the body, but you aren't singular by yourself, the church. Not trying to shoot holes in anyone's doctrine, theology, or persuasion, but you're, you're not individually, you don't go out and be the church. The Greek word used uh, for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. It's a secular word. It wasn't a religious word. Paul, there wasn't a religious vocabulary in the Greek language that Paul went to the Greek lexicon and the Thayer's lexicon and pulled out religious words to put into his letters that he was writing. He wrote in the vernacular and the vocabulary of the classical Greek that people understood in the culture. So he takes a word, ekklesia, and he's right, when he writes it, and it's used by others in the New Testament, the word ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. Church, that's how we see it in the English. It appears as the word church, but in the Greek, ecclesia. It means the called out assembly. It refers to and convey, the conveying of citizens, the convening, I'm sorry, the convening of citizens, I better use those glasses. <laughs> conveying and convening. It's the convening of the citizens to discuss legal matters. I don't have my bifocals this morning. In other words, the ecclesia, the church, is the ones that are called out as citizens of the kingdom of God to gather together to convene. It doesn't matter. This building is not the church. Now, it is a facility where the church convenes. The called out ones are convening to discuss legal matters pertaining to the changing of the city. You didn't hear me. It was looked upon as a legislative assembly of chosen ones that came together it's a political and government term, and it's used for this group of people who have been summoned to gather together to govern the affairs of the city. I'm thankful for elected officials. I'm thankful that we can partake in um, the democratic system, the democracy, not that we're Republicans or Democrats. I'm not here to discuss that. Because more than any of that, you are the ecclesia. We are the ecclesia. We are called and summoned together to assemble together. Now, that might look like a few people getting together in a home. That may look like some uh, folks getting together over at the coffee shop. It may look like gathering on the streets. But when we are summoned by Holy Spirit to collectively meet, then we begin to discuss the governing and the affairs of the kingdom of God in operation in the city. Thank you. So, you are the ecclesia. <laughs> no, that won't work. <laughs> Thank you. I apologize for the nasal condition that I have this morning with a sinus infection. And if it sounds anything to you like it sounds to myself, I apologize. <laughs> But it was used and it is still used to represent the collective body of believers worldwide. The church of the living God. It's 
rep, it represents God's people in a particular region. It's used often to depict a local congregation. We call ourselves the church, Grace Life Church. It's a local congregation where we're called out from our homes, our workplaces, and we come and gather and we discuss the affairs of the kingdom of God. Come on. And it could be used for a group of the Lord's people assembled to worship. And it just doesn't have to be in a building that we've chosen in the Western culture to call a church. Uh, it really doesn't match uh, the definition of a church. It's not a building. The first use of this word is found in Matthew 16. Turn with me to Matthew, the 16th chapter, and we will read. Some of you will have it in red because most of chapter 16, verses 16 through 19, we will hear the master speaking. We're going to hear the words of Jesus. Can I just trace a rabbit real quick? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Wrong translation. Hearing comes by faith, Faith comes by hearing the word of Christo, Christ. It's the words of Christ. What did he say? My words are life and light. The Spirit gives life and the words that he speaks. So when we hear the words of Christ and the words about Christ, that's what increases our faith, builds our faith. And he uses this term for the first time in the context of identity. I was telling Shane and Leslie before church in our meeting that when we go to Israel, we will go to Caesarea Philippi. That's where Matthew 16 takes place. Matthew 16 takes place at Caesarea Philippi. And you climb up a little mountain, and up on the top of the mountain, there are still a big rock wall. It's still there today. It's a big rock wall. And that's where Jesus is asking his disciples Verse 16, who do men say that I am? Now this was a wall where it was, they worshipped the god Pan. And there were five different gods that were worshipped there. And on this mountain in these rocks, there was a hole at the top of the rocks. And it was labeled the gates of hell. I'm giving you context, okay? They would make infant sacrifices to these five gods on this mountain there. And Jesus is not gathering at the temple and asking, who do men say that I am? He's going right up in the midst of the culture, right up in the midst of all that is going on, everything that is being worshipped. There's a lot of things being worshipped in our culture today. Who do you say that he is? Not all road, roads lead to the Father. Notice I didn't say heaven, I said the Father. Because Jesus didn't say he was the only way to heaven. Don't get me wrong. Don't misquote me. But Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. You can only get to the Father through me. And Jesus is saying, none of these other religions, you can worship anything. But Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. All those gods were dead. And Jesus said to him, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven, 
I also say to you, verse 18, that you are Peter. Arabic really is used here and not Greek. And the word Peter is an Arabic word and it is kephas is the Arabic word that is used. And it means small stone or pebble. And then Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. Please help me. Holy Ghost. He didn't build his church on Peter. He built his church upon the rock, the foundation, the bedrock that he was the Christ, the chief cornerstone, the the stone the builders rejected. He is building his church upon his name, upon him himself. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Listen to what this is. I want to teach you. I want to give you some resources. I want to give you some insight. The King James says the gates of hell. Other translations say Hades. The word hell used in the King James is a mistranslation of the word grave. Okay, Hades is a better translation. And Hades is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol. And you can go all the way back into the Old Testament. David uses it a lot. And he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, we've translated that, mistranslated that as hell, but it's the word Sheol. If in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish custom and tradition, there was not a place of eternal torment, I'm coming up against a wall, but I'm just trying to share with you. Sheol was a temporary place. Coming over from the New Testament, there was a great gulf that divided, and um, there was an upper region and a lower region, and the lower region was called Hades in the New Testament. Same thing as Sheol, place of the departed spirit, spirit, a temporary holding cell. Here's what it, if you really want the meaning, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the power of death or all the forces of darkness will never have the power to win the victory over the bride, the church, the chosen people that I have selected. Okay? So death, even the death of Christ, I I think that in context he's speaking that if I die, I'm still building my church and darkness and death will not be able to overcome the church that I'm building because he knew the rest of the story was that he was going to rise again and that his death would be our death and that his resurrection would be our resurrection and that his ascension would be our ascension. For Jesus to use this term means he is giving the keys of governmental authority to his bride, the church. Well, how do you know that? Can we continue to read in context of building his church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, summoned to assemble together to talk about the government of the kingdom of God that will overtake the city? Then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. 
So in the context of identity, first knowing who he is and how much he loved you and what he did for you, we receive a revelation from the Father of who we are because we know who he is. And as we receive a revelation of who he is and who we are, identity, see your individual identity is found in Christ. Our collective identity is found in that we are the bride of Christ, the ecclesia. And we have been given the keys. That's why he has called us out. Is so then in the context of corporate worship and corporate gatherings, you will find out what's been released to you and what's been released in heaven, what has been bound in heaven, so that you can walk in the affairs of the kingdom of God and walk out ruling and reigning with him in this life. Jesus is building his bride. He declared it in Matthew 16, and he continues to declare that, and he continues. I love what Jamie Englehart said two weeks ago, and I've been holding on to. There are a lot of things that are true about us. Hebrews 10 says that you have forever been perfected by the offering of the one Jesus Christ. So you, you are perfected and sanctified, it even says. But is that true to me so that maybe I'm still going through some things that are perfecting me? The work he did for me is a finished work. The work he is doing in me is a, he said, the work that I have started in you, I will bring into completion. So he's still working on me. He is still building the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the bride. We are the bride from his side. Okay, look at it. We are the bride from his side. This picture, illustration, allegory, whatever you want to call it, metaphor, takes us all the way back to the beginning. The first Adam, his bride came from his side. That was a picture of what Christ would do for us. The church was birthed at the cross. The, the, when they pierced him in the side, that was not an accident. When a child is born, blood and water flow. What happened when he was punctured in the side? Blood and water flowed. Where did Eve come from? The side of Adam. It was from a it was from a posture of rest that the church was birthed, or Eve was birthed, and now we have been birthed from his side, and he's put us in a posture of rest. But watch this. Then the church received life on the day of Pentecost. He breathed his spirit into that which he had formed and now the bride is from his side. The word build here in verse 18, Matthew 16, means to establish, to promote growth, to give wisdom to, show affection and grace upon, to bless, to give virtue and holiness to. And it gives the notation towards to construct, to edify, and to embolden. And if you want proof of that, you can look it up in the Strong's Concordance, G318. I'm just not giving you my opinion. I'm giving you what men and women have studied, researched, dug into to give us definition and context to these words. So he is taking his bride that came from his side and he is establishing her 
You can amen it and say thank you, Jesus, anywhere you want to. He's promoting growth in her. He's giving wisdom to her. He shows affection towards her. He gives grace. He blesses. That word blessed there is a eulogy. He's spoken a eulogy over you and blessed your life. He, and he has given us holiness. The origin of holiness is not your works. The origin of holiness is the spirit that he's placed within you. And he is edifying her. Jesus loves the bride. He loves his bride. You heard Lisa give context to Ephesians that he loved her so much that he gave his life for her. We are his beloved and he is ours. Carolyn, I think you were my second grade Sunday school teacher or first. That's been 50 plus years ago. I know. She was only 12. Uh, <laughs> but we would sing a song, and I remember the hand motions. His banner over me is love. I am his beloved, and he is mine. His banner over me is love. Do you remember that song? Um, well, it was only about two years after that, at nine years old, that I preached my first sermon in Children's Church at Maranatha. Um, no, I won't tell that joke. That's not politically correct. Do you remember it? Okay. You can find the tape somewhere. I'm sure it's still available. The word beloved in Hebrew is yada yad. Y-A-D-I-Y-A-D. Yada yad. And it means hand in hand. Can you picture it? He says that I am his beloved and, I, and he is mine. You have a ring that says that, don't you? I'm his. Yeah, you got it in Israel. She wears it all the time. But it means hand in hand. So he's just not a husband to the bride who's far off. He lives inside us and he takes us by the hand and he leads us through life. Beloved. Hand in hand. Psalm 139 verses 3 and 4 in the Passion Translation says, You are so intimately aware of me. You read my heart like an open book, Lord, and you know all the words that I'm about to speak before I even start a sentence. You know every step I will take before my journey even begins. Can I keep on going and give you the JRW3 uh, version? You know what I like on my sandwiches. You know I don't like pickles and I don't like onions. You know I prefer mayonnaise instead of ketchup. That, that's that right. That's the intimate relationship that David was seeing that was connecting his church and the bridegroom. Ephesians, let me say this first, we matter to him. He is into me, you see. Can I say that again? He's into me, you see. Intimacy. He is into you. Ephesians 5.25 implies that Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us, but not only for us, but to us. Christ loves the church completely, and his unres he is unreserved in giving himself to her. The giving of himself at the cross 
was only the beginning of his unreserved giving of himself to the church and for the church. He has not stopped giving himself to the church. This should awaken a different level of commitment in us. It's not out of duty. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of shame. It's out of the level of he loves me so much that he gave his life for me. He continues to pour out his life into me. And he's into me, you see. Thirdly, Jesus empowers his bride. He builds her, he loves her, he empowers her. He's given us the name to use. I know it's not, it's traditional, but it's not contemporary in a lot of cases for females to take the name of their husband. But it's been traditional that the female would take the, the man's name. Uh, I believe that it's biblical that because we are married to him that he gave us his name. Um, he gives us everything as a provider that pertains to life. Any gift that we have, it's not ours. He gave us the power to get wealth. He gave us uh, the the uh, intellect, the intuition. He's placed within us gifts. Everything that we have comes from him, and he's given us everything that we need for life. He gives us authority. That goes along with his name. You didn't have the authority to use your husband's name until the marriage had been consummated. Stay with me because I'm going somewhere. He gives us gifts through his spirit. So he is empowering us with authority, with his power, with his gifts. And he is, he, it, we really do matter to him and he has our best interest at heart. That's why he shakes his head when we make our own decisions because we have a free will to make those decisions, but we're not free from the consequences of making those decisions. That's why he wants us to realize that he has taken us by the hand, and if we will go where he is leading us, the consequences will, they will be rewards, not consequences of following him. So the issue that I have with a bridal paradigm, that's the thinking and teaching of the bride of Christ, the church, in the Western Christendom, and as taught by most end-time Bible prophecy teachers, this is the issue that I have with it, okay? Number one, most of that teaching says that we are only engaged to him and we're not married. Well, if I'm only engaged to him and I'm not married, no covenant, no loving it. I still believe no wed, no bed. That goes for us in our life. I'm not getting a whole lot of help on that. <laughs> but I still believe no covenant, no loving it. No wed, no bed. And so if that's true in the physical, it, it is a paradigm that connects with the spiritual. And if I'm only engaged to him, I can't use his name. I don't have his authority. I don't have right to the things that he... There's no intimacy 
because there's only engagement, and like Lisa has been saying over the last several months, it places delay and distance. I don't like to be away from her. There's too many things that I enjoy when I'm with her that I can't enjoy when I'm not with her. The second thing is that we have to wait until we die to be married to him. How many of you wanting to die today? Well, according to a lot of these end-time preachers, the only way that you're going to get married to him and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb is when you die. I'm just trying to give you some resources. You can dig into it and you can find out. But Ephesians 5.27 in the Mirror Translation says that this intimate language presents the church, his restored image and likeness. That's the definition that the Mirror Translation gives to the ecclesia. His restored image and likeness. It presents the church to himself. Now notice that in just about any translation that you look at, it's not the church presenting herself. It's the bridegroom, Jesus, presenting to himself, to his delightful approval, without any distraction or reminder of a blemished past, no wrinkle or scar of sin's abuse, circle that word abuse, remain. She stands before him in immaculate innocence. But we work our fingers to the bone and hoping that he will return to find a spotless bride. I am not saying that there aren't things in our lives that we need to clean up. That is not what I'm saying. But you know who shows us that and reveals that to us? The indwelling Holy Spirit will speak to you and tell you the things that you ought to be doing or you ought not to be doing. I could stand up here this morning and I could hit real hard with a lot of fervor and passion because I used to do it and start nailing things. Modesty, sexuality, gender identity. I could start naming a bunch of political issues and I could give you a bunch of hot topics and I could probably get a few people to shout. Why? Am I better than the Holy Spirit? I don't know your intimate thoughts. I don't know what you're dealing with and what you're struggling with, but he does and he will help you. And that's why he he's already presented to himself a bribe without spot. There's no reminder or the stain of sin on us anymore when he looks at us. And that, um, what did he say there about the scar or the wrinkle of sin's abuse doesn't remain. Under the old covenant, Israel was the espoused or betrothed bride to the son. The blood, can I just, I don't want to be inappropriate but I just want to talk about when there's an intimate relationship that happens when that first happens there's blood that's a covenant there was Adam and Eve didn't have a $10,000 wedding at the uh, Greenbrier with a big reception 
Adam knew Eve, and they were married, and the two became one flesh. So that establishes that covenants are made in blood. And so the old covenant was established, and can I say it this way, consummated in the blood of goats and bulls. And the blood that was shed was that of animals, bulls, goats, lambs, doves, etc. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that. And it was impossible through that blood to eradicate sin. That was a covenant. In the new covenant, the blood that was shed by Jesus eradicated the sins of the world so that there was no more blemish, there was no more stain, there's no more wrinkle, and there's no more scar if we've believed. And that blood has washed us and cleansed us. Now Romans 7 then tells us that since we were not, we are not under the law and the first Adam is dead, we are free to marry another, the last Adam. So Romans 7 is not talking to us about divorce and remarriage. It's been used a lot for that. But what Paul is trying to tell us in the context of one covenant that has been completely fulfilled and a brand new covenant that has been actuated and inaugurated by the blood of Jesus you had to have the death of the first one to be married to the second one because the first one wouldn't do. Adam's dead and he has left the building. A lot of the bride of Christ is living under an abuse spouse syndrome. The law would beat you up. Adam will take, just wear you out because sin will always take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. And I'm not here to abuse the bride or beat her up whether she's in this building or another building this morning. But if I were you, I wouldn't keep going back under a system that abuses me and mistreats me and makes me a slave. Because when the law is preached, sin is revived. And people will do more under the preaching of the law trying to keep it and then failing in it and being discouraged and defeated and then rebel against it, then they will if you'll just preach the goodness of God and the love of God and what he's already done for you and what he wants to do in you and through you. It's a slave mentality, always trying to earn the love of a husband. We've got to change our vocabulary. We not only need to change our mindset, of who our husband is, but we need to change our vocabulary from battlefield mentality to bedchamber mentality. Because if we have a battlefield mentality under abuse spouse syndrome, we will take up shields and spears and we will go after an enemy that your husband has already defeated. Your bridegroom has already defeated the enemy. I was in a meeting recently, and in, a me in the meeting that I was in, the Lord really had to help me, and he did. I wanted to get up and say a few things, but it wasn't my place to do it, and it was, wouldn't have been received well, 
and the Holy Spirit wasn't leading that way, but man, they were talking about the devil a lot. And what he had done and what he was doing and how he was beating them up and how it now listen, what Carolyn said, I believe is true. You will be attacked in your mind and you will have shouts and scream and it can put you under the carpet. It will mess with your mind. And she did what she was supposed to do. It's always in order to praise the Lord. Praise paralyzes those screams and those shouts. But I was getting heavy in this meeting. And uh, at the end of the meeting, the one in charge called on me. Uh, I was released, brother. Once he called on me, I was released. And I said, folks, I just want to tell you one thing this evening. There, there's one, and he says he has all the power. And if he has it all, then nobody else has any of it. And stop giving power over to a defeated foe, and let's rise up and take the authority that we've been given by the bridegroom. Because he said, the power that I have, I now give unto you. Let's wrap this up. Hosea, the second chapter, verse 19. If you know the story of Hosea and Gomor, it's a picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and Israel. Because under the old covenant, Israel was the espoused bride. Now, you have to stay with me to the very end to find out who true Israel is. So, this, this is a picture of how many times that Gomar had left and prostituted herself uh, and was committing idolatry and idolatry and that the, the Lord kept taking Hosea back to her in the second chapter, verse 19, I believe it's a prophetic picture of what Jesus was do, going to do for us. And it says, I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and tender compassion. That word in is such a small word. It's a preposition. In the Hebrew language, it's the word bet, B-E-T. It's repeated through verse 19 and 20 in Hosea, and it denotes that there was a price that was paid. In righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love and compassion, the price was paid and I commit myself to you forever. That can only be the language of the bridegroom towards the bride. That is only the bedchamber language that Jesus, the lover of your soul, would say to you. I hope you can get a hold of that. I will commit myself to you forever. It's an everlasting covenant. And the great thing about this covenant is just like Gomar, when she walked away a bazillion times, he has attached himself to you and you cannot divorce him. <laughs> then Ezekiel, the sixth chapter, I don't have this on the screen, the 16th chapter, verse 8. Jennifer, if you'd come and play, Frank. And later, this is Ezekiel speaking through the, the words of Holy Spirit. Later, when I passed by you and looked at you, I saw that you were young enough or old enough to love. In other words, you were old enough to be married. So I spread my robe over you and covered your nakedness. 
When I saw that, the Holy Spirit took me back to Genesis when Adam and Eve, they were one day naked and unashamed and the next day after they had eaten the fruit, they were naked and ashamed. Anytime you see nakedness, look at the context and see what Jesus is saying to us prophetically is here, when I saw you, I covered your shame and your guilt. <laughs> I covered anything that you would have been ashamed of. I've taken care of it. I, I put it under my covering. I also made a promise to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, says the Lord. Then I bathed you with water, washed all of the blood off of you, and I put oil on you. Baptism, his blood covering us, and the oil of the Holy Spirit. This is Ezekiel. This is a prophetic picture of what the bridegroom was going to do for the bride. Then I put beautiful clothes made with needlework on you and put sandals and fine leather on your feet. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I put jewelry on you, bracelets on your arms, necklace around your neck, a ring on your nose and two earrings for your ears and a beautiful crown. One translation says a tiara. It does. I think it's the passion that says that and a beautiful crown on your head so you wore gold and silver your clothes were made of fine linen silk and beautiful needlework you ate fine flour honey and olive oil you were very beautiful and became a beautiful queen then you became famous among the nations because you were so beautiful your beauty was perfect because of the glory that I gave to you says the Lord that is bedchamber language of the bridegroom speaking over the ecclesia, his church. And it sounds familiar to me. It sounded like familiar language to me. Where else can I find that type of language? Will you join me as we close in Revelation, the 21st chapter? Verses 1 and 2. Sorry, I went so long. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I could spend a lot of time right there and there is no longer any sea. This is speaking of the Holy of Holies, the outer court and the brazen laver. We can talk about that some other time. Then he said in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, made ready here it is, as a bride adorned for her husband. What is she adorned with? Fine linen and silk, bracelets for her arm, earrings for her ears, a crown for her head. That's the church, his bride. That's what he has done. That's the covenant that he made. Verse 9 says, Come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. In Revelation, Babylon is a symbolic language and it's not for a city. It's a fallen mindset. So the new Jerusalem is not a city. It's a people. And it's a redeemed society of mankind. The bride of Christ. Francis Dutrois. So when you're looking at it, if you're looking for a city, you're going to miss the bride, the lamb's wife, the people of God. 
And who are those people? These are the ones with a redeemed mindset that they do belong to him and he belongs to them. My intentions are to help convince you and build confidence in you that you are his bride. Let's stand together. Jesus, we thank you that you reached into our hearts and you said that with one flash of our eyes that you were undone by love. You call us your beloved, your equal, your bride. In the Song of Solomon, you say you leave, we leave you breathless that you overcome by merely a glance from our worshiping eyes. We've stolen your heart and you have stolen ours. May we be held hostage by your love and by the graces of righteousness that you bestow upon us. In this love affair, in this dance, thank you for the intimate relationship that we can spend with you I want to say this one more one thing if you look at me for just a second men sometimes it is difficult for us to understand the function as the bride of Christ I want to give you a simplistic simplicity of what that means for all of us males and females in a spiritual sense, we are the bride of Christ. Here it is. I'm going to boil it down for one reason. Because we have received the seed. The female always receives the seed. That's why it's important for us. If you would want to take a look at our, our constitution and our statement of faith on our website, gracelifewv.com, it states that we believe in marriage between one man as created by God and one woman as created by God because the seed that is in the man is to be placed in the woman. That's very simple. Spiritually speaking, we are the bride of Christ. 1 Peter 1.23 says that we have received the incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. Matthew 4 tells us that the word of God is Christ. So we have received that seed. We are carriers of the word of God. But we are sons of God because we now disperse that seed in the earth. And the kingdom is spread and the church is built. Now, we have a kingdom assignment to continue to gather as the ecclesia, the called out ones, were summoned to get together and discuss kingdom affairs to remind each other that we are the bride of Christ and that he's bestowed these gifts upon us and he's clothed us in fine linen and we can see that as it is in heaven, so shall it be on the earth. That's our declaration, amen? Is anything on anybody's heart? I don't want to just...